welcome to Bitchy History, the American history podcast that might place me in the same category as Disney for the first time ever. Not in net worth, but at least in how much Republicans hate me. And I'll take what I can get at this point. There are a lot of beginnings I could have chosen for this podcast. The history of Paleolithic tribes into the Americas is very important, but not exactly my specialty. Perhaps one day I'll bring on a guest to discuss it. I have a few co-workers who do specialize in that area. And ultimately, that prehistory is based on archaeology, and I tend to prefer to stick to social and cultural history. So ultimately, that's a bit too early for this show. I could also start with the founding of America, the American Revolution, the Declaration of Independence, but honestly, that would be too late. There would be too much context missing for understanding the world that the colonists lived in and the events that shaped it. So I could go back a bit and start with Jamestown, the first British colony and the home of the House of Burgesses, the basis of America's bicameral legislature in Virginia. But that's also a bit too late because British colonists on American soil didn't spring up out of the earth with no origin. They came here to this country, crossing thousands of miles of oceans to establish themselves in a new world. So where do we start? Well, we take a broader view, a global view of what brought Europeans here to the Americas in the first place, the age of exploration. The Age of Exploration was a period from around the 15th to the 17th century in Europe. However, the groundwork for it began much earlier, which is a sentence you're probably going to hear a lot on this podcast. If you ask me a simple question like, why did the American Revolution happen? You are almost definitely going to get a potted history of the English Civil War before we even glance at tea taxes. Since the fall of Rome in the 4th century CE, Europe had become increasingly isolated. Feudalism reigned, the church held sway, and no one was really very happy. In the late 11th century CE, the Crusades begin, and Europe's biggest exports become soldiers and religion, but their biggest imports become spices, silk, and luxury trade goods from the Middle East. You'd think that the existence of stuff far nicer than the stuff they had at home in Europe might have clued them into the fact that the Middle East was actually doing pretty well without Europe's soldiers and religion, but that's not really the way Europeans think. The thing is, once you start using spices, wearing silk, and generally having access to things that you didn't have available in 11th and 12th century Europe, you kind of develop a taste for them and you don't want to do without. So as the Crusades end up coming to an end, Europe begins to turn its eye towards less intentionally murdery ways to get their hands on these goods. In the 13th century, new overland and oceanic routes are going to be found, and Italy, especially Venice, will become the hub of a major trading empire with the Middle East, dominating most of the trade between Europe and the East. The trade routes established by the Italians would become linked with those of the rest of the Mediterranean and eventually the Baltic and northern regions of Europe, creating the first networked global trade economy in Europe since the fall of Rome in the 4th century. During this period, we're going to see the beginnings of the modern commercial infrastructure, with double-entry bookkeeping, joint stock companies, an international banking system, and foreign exchange market, insurance, government debt, all the things that we think of today when we think of the modern economy. Florence will become the center of this financial industry, and the gold florin becomes the main currency of all international trade. The population and economy absolutely explode, with the population nearly doubling, and in Florence, Venice, and Milan, the population is over 100,000 citizens by the 13th century. Unfortunately, with the good is also going to come the bad. Major trade routes would become the highways needed to spread disease rapidly across Europe, which is why when we overlay a map of the spread of the Black Plague with a map of the Silk Road overland route and the maps of the ports of the 14th century in Europe, you'll notice a distinct similarity. These trade routes would allow the first sustained transmission of a pandemic between highly diverse and widespread populations. 
The Black Death would eventually kill more than 50 million in Europe between 1346 and 1352, or around a third to a half of the population. It also resulted in widespread social, economic, cultural, and religious changes across Europe. I won't tell too deep on this particular subject, uh, because I want to have things to cover if I ever cover European history in this podcast. The amount of death during the plague means Europe now has a much smaller labor force. The supply of workers cannot meet the demand by employers, and as a result, wages of, of workers begin to increase. There's a veritable bidding war between business owners that need workers in both urban and rural areas, and survivors of the plague are going to end up with a much higher standard of living and far more disposable income than the generations before had. And before anyone gets any bright ideas, I know that my generation of millennials and every generation below me will probably never own a home or pay off their student loans, but this is not the answer. Just because after the Black Death, people had more expendable income does not mean this is the answer to our modern problem, okay? So these changes, among several others, are a major part of launching the Renaissance in Europe, and one part of the Renaissance is the Age of Exploration. See, we, we eventually got to the age of exploration. Eventually. So what does the hunt for Middle Eastern and Eastern trade routes and luxury goods have to do with the eventual discovery, can you hear the finger quotes I'm using, uh, of the Americas? Surprisingly a lot. To start this section, let me remind you that I am a historian, not a nautical engineer. So I am going to give you the most base level understanding of what the age of exploration did to nautical travel. Prior to this period, boats had been small, they were a lot more suited to traveling close to the coast where they could keep land in sight. Ships like galleys in the Mediterranean or the Nordic Drakkar also relied mainly on oars for propulsion, aided by a few square sails that could be used if the wind was in their favor. The age of exploration ends up bringing several changes to shipbuilding techniques. New ships like caravels, carracks, or galleons, depending on the style or size, would begin to make, make it possible to move large amounts of goods and travel faster, while other scientific advancements in technology like compasses and astrolabes, largely lifted from designs made by Arabic navigators, would allow ships to venture much further out from shore. Without these advancements, the exploration of the Americas by Europe would never have been possible. So why bother with exploring that far out in the first place? Surely the Middle East and China had enough luxury goods to go around. The first thing to note is that no one was really looking for a new continent. They were looking primarily for new routes to get to the same trading ports. Italy and Arabic traders dominated the trade routes, and most Western European countries quickly got sick of dealing with middlemen who jacked up the price and the, on the goods that they were importing and exporting. As a result, they would begin to try to find their own routes to get to the east. In addition to trade routes, the Catholic Church also had an interest in spreading Christianity throughout the world, partly to combat the growth of Islam at the time. By 1492, there are four major power players in Europe. There's Spain, the most wealthy and powerful nation, Portugal, known for their trade routes and superior nautical craftsmanship, and France and England, both very powerful countries, but at the moment engaged in a very distracting war with each other and internal strife as well within their own countries. Spain and Portugal take advantage of this essentially to take over the trade and exploration routes at this point. And in June of 1494, these two countries end up dividing the known world into two parts. Spain claims all non-Christian lands west of the dividing line and Portugal claims all the non-Christian lands east of the line. 
it's fun that Spain and Portugal, knowing that there were natives on those islands, just decided we've never been to these places, yet we own them now. But hey, the natives aren't Christian, so they don't count by European standards of the period. Which brings us to the first lesson this series will have on the history of oppression uh, in history, specifically the oppression of European colonialism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm really bringing down the mood with this next part, but you knew what you were signing up for with this podcast. The first thing you need to understand is that pretty much no one wakes up in the morning with the intent to be the villain. When we see bigotry and oppression, generally the people in power have spent a lot of time and effort rationalizing their oppression of the other. And both race and religion have been a huge factor in rationalizing oppression in Western society. Oppression has evolved a lot over the course of human history. It's been based on religion and nationality or even just geographic location within a nation well before the establishment of oppression based on skin color ever came into play. For instance, if you look at how the Borgias were treated in the history of the papacy, Alexander Lee, a specialist in the history of the Italian Renaissance, writes that he sees several reasons for why contemporary observers were so vicious in their writings about the family, which have shaped the modern view of the family so much that they had their own Showtime series in 2011. Lee writes that the first of these reasons was simply that they were Spaniards, and so opinions about them were yoked to the shifting perceptions of Spanish influence in the Italian peninsula. Spain's involvement in the affairs of northern Italy during the late 15th and 16th centuries inspired a form of anti-Spanish propaganda known as the Black Legend, which identified all things Spanish with oppression, brutality, and cruelty. That position as outsiders, almost usurpers of the generally Italian-run papacy, ruffled feathers and encouraged contemporaries to paint the Borgias with the same brush as all other anti-Spanish propaganda of the time. That's not to say the Borgias weren't terrible, but in context of the behaviors of many other popes before and after them, they weren't really the outliers that the writings of the time would have us believing either. They were demonized not for their behavior necessarily, but for their nationality. It's a bit like how Americans are always the target to anti-tourist stereotypes when we know that tourists from every part of the world behave obnoxiously. But at least the Borgias were Catholic, so while they might have suffered anti-Spanish propaganda, at least they were viewed as following the right God and being afforded the respect that came from that in Western Europe at the time. When you weren't Catholic, that's when the real trouble started, because that whole concept of freedom of religion and universal human rights wasn't really a thing at the time. If you weren't a Christian at the time that the age of exploration was really kicking off, you basically could count on having fewer legal and social protections than the average draft horse. And since the Protestant Reformation hadn't started yet, Catholicism was really the only game in town for Christianity. And we can see this in the signing of the Treaty of Tordesillas in 1494 that I mentioned earlier. This 15th century treaty was signed by only two signatories, Spain and Portugal, and it served to divide the New World of the Americas neatly between these two powers. Spain and Portugal divided the New World by drawing a north-to-south line of demarcation in the Atlantic Ocean, about 345 miles west of the Cape Verde Islands off the coast of northwestern Africa, which were then controlled by Portugal. All lands east of that line were claimed by Portugal. All lands west of that line were claimed by Spain. The treaty completely ignored the established communities that already existed in the Americas, neatly justifying it by stipulating that any lands with a Christian king would not be colonized. This means that unless the land was already claimed by a Christian ruler, i.e. another European, by the terms of their treaty, Spain and Portugal could claim practically any land they managed to conquer in the Americas. This would result in the conquest and colonization, and in some cases near-complete destruction, of Aztec and Incan empires, among many others. <laughs> 
The issue of race is going to enter the chat eventually, of course, but it's much later in the discussion once there is again a need to justify the issue of race is going to enter the chat eventually, because of course it is, but it's much later in the discussion, once there is again a need to justify oppression and enslavement, once the conversion process has actually got, begun to work and enough intermarriage and cultural mingling has begun to happen, especially in early Spanish colonies, where mixed marriages were not nearly as forbidden as they would become later in American history. Once they are Christian and suitably civilized to behave the way that Europeans wanted them to, the old methods of justifying the slave trade and colonization began to feel a little more ideologically shaky. The old religious discrimination isn't going to vanish, of course. It's just going to evolve in its own way, especially with Protestant versus Catholic bigotry, which features heavily in 18th and 19th century American history. But we'll get into that at another time. Thanks for tuning in to hear me bitch about history. Tune in next time for our first How Did We Get Here episode, where we'll be talking about the deeply rooted history and tradition of abortion in our nation, because Supreme Court Justice Alito definitely failed his American history class. Remember, you can find the link to my podcast, Discord, and my TikTok account, along with various other resources in my link tree, which should be in the description of this podcast.